This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Uh, welcome to Rand, or welcome back to many of you. I see a lot of familiar uh, faces. I'm Michael Rich. I'm the executive vice uh, president of Rand. And this Issues in Focus uh, series is an important part of our effort to share our research and expertise with uh, a broader community here in Southern California and also learn from the interactions we have with people who come to these events. Now, to introduce our speaker, I want to introduce uh, Dr. Susan Rice. I lost her for a second uh, there. Um, uh, Susan has a very, very long history of civic engagement in many, many different settings. And uh, Susan will introduce our speaker tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Good evening, everyone. A special hello to my Policy Circle colleagues. I'm also pleased to be with all of you and my many RAND colleagues here tonight and uh, tickled to be able to introduce a new member of the RAND leadership team, Art Kellerman. He's RAND's new vice president, he directs RAND Health, and he's also a newcomer to California. He spent over 25 years teaching and practicing emergency room medicine. He received his medical doctorate from Emory University and then went on to establish Emory's Department of Emergency Medicine and the Emory Center for Injury Control. He's been elected to the Institute of Medicine. He served two terms on the board of directors for the American College of Emergency Physicians, and was a Robert Wood Johnson Health Policy Fellow during which time he worked for the Committee on Oversight and Government Reform with the U.S. Congress. He's a leading voice on critical issues related to health policy and reform. So please join me in welcoming Art to California and to the podium. Thank you. That was very sweet. Good evening. We're going to talk about one of the most important domestic policy challenges facing the United States, which is the cost of health care, and the challenge it's presenting to our economy, to our competitiveness in a business sense around the world, and the finances of individual families. I talked to some of you prior to tonight. All of you have a story to tell. All of us have had to deal with these issues at one point or another in our lives or through our children or through our parents. But before I dive into the topic, I think it's important to speak with candor and to come clean because I really know why many of you came here tonight. And I regret to tell you that although the resemblance is uncanny, I am not George Clooney. Don't, don't leave, though. Don't leave. It's okay. Um, I, I don't play one on television. I did play one in real life for 25 years in Seattle, Memphis, and Atlanta, Georgia. And ER docs deal with these issues every day and every night, whether it's people without health insurance, folks hanging by a thread, and we're going all out to save their lives. The economics of American medicine and the technical aspects of American medicine intersect in the emergency department really like nowhere else. And it's one of the reasons that I got increasingly engaged in health policy, and that in turn led me to RAND. RAND Health, as Susan said, is one of the most highly regarded health policy research organizations in the world. We have 275 
research professionals from a wide range of expertise and disciplinary focuses. So it's not all PhDs or all MDs or all behavioral science folks. It's all kinds of different people. At any given point in time, over 270 research projects. We publish more than 300 peer-reviewed articles a year, many of them in the world's most rigorous and prestigious journals. We focus on policy research that makes a difference, kitchen table issues, things that matter not only in this country, but around the world as well. And we are committed to tackling the toughest challenges of our times. And one of those, and the one we're going to talk about tonight, is health care costs. Just before the 2008 presidential election, I had an opportunity to participate in a debate in New York City and Manhattan that was what they call an Oxford-style debate. There were two teams, three debaters on each team. One team was anchored by a Nobel Prize-winning economist and New York Times columnist, Paul Krugman. The other was anchored by ABC commentator and Emmy winner, John Stossel. And they took very different opinions as they went about their discussions that night. And at the start of the night, it was discussing whether or not the federal government has a role in assuring that everyone have coverage in the United States, Stossel let off, and he started with his favorite metaphor, the Trabant. The Trabant was the iconic car of East Germany. It had a fiberglass body. It was powered by a 45-horsepower two-stroke engine. You literally had to shake the car to kind of get the oil and the gasoline to mix before you could start it, and at its best, it may be mustered a top speed of 65 or 70 miles an hour. Stossel described the Trabant in great detail, and then he said, this is what planned economies and universal health care coverage get us. I don't want this kind of health care. The crowd roared. Wonderful opening line. Krugman, no slouch himself, said, now wait a minute, wait a minute. Last time I checked, the United States is not a communist state. They're, they're, that's East Germany. East Germany was controlled in a Stalin-type communist government. But there was another Germany at the same time. It was West Germany. Capitalism, democracy, highly developed country. And, you know, they even made some pretty decent automobiles. <laughs> another, and you know what else? Although they have a regulated private health insurance industry with private docs and private hospitals, they also cover everybody in their country. By the way, Krugman went on, so does every other industrialized country in the world except the United States. Now, that exchange got me thinking. I said, you know, if American health care was a motor vehicle, and after all, we're in Southern California, right? This is a car culture. If the United States healthcare system was a motor vehicle, which one would it be? Well, the answer is obvious. The Hummer. <laughs> now, Consumer Reports, one of my favorite magazines, <clears throat> had this to say about the Hummer um, a few years ago. The Hummer gets awful fuel economy. The handling is ungainly. The brakes are subpar, and a terrible view out makes it difficult to judge the vehicle's hulking position within a traffic lane. You know, you read an article, and you say, oh, come on, tell me how you really feel. <laughs> but that's what Consumer Reports thought. Now, is the analogy fair, or am I like Stossel taking an unfair advantage? Well, you know, I think in this case it probably is fair. We have by far the most expensive health care system on earth. 
no other country comes close. We spend $2.5 trillion a year on healthcare in the United States. And folks, zeros matter. A million seconds ago was last week. A billion seconds ago, a fellow Georgian, Jimmy Carter, was inaugurated president of the United States. A trillion seconds ago was 30,000 B.C. That's how many a trillion is, and we spend $2.5 trillion a year on health care. In fact, when you hear politicians talk about the evils of socialized medicine, What's amazing to me is that our system is so economically inefficient that we spend more taxpayer money per person on health care than the French. Good Lord. <laughs> so the fact is we have an incredibly expensive health care system. Again, far more than any other country on earth. And worse yet, we are pulling away from the pack. Health care in this country every year outgrows inflation. What that means is every year, like Pac-Man, it's biting a bigger and bigger piece of our economy, a bigger and bigger piece of your take-home pay, a bigger and bigger piece of your company's bottom line. In 2009, a year that our economy contracted, we lost ground, our GDP went negative, health care costs grew 4%. 4%. We spent, in 2009, nearly $100 billion more than we spent the year before on health care in a year when the rest of our economy was contracting and millions of Americans lost their job. That's, that's impressive. You've got to work hard to maintain that kind of growth. What effect does that have on us? Again, for American companies in the last 10 years, their health care costs more than doubled to cover their workers. And for individual American families, their share of the insurance premium, if you're lucky enough to get health insurance coverage as an employee, it also doubled. And these costs went up much, much faster than inflation and much, much faster than America's earning potential. So a big chunk of what we otherwise would have gained in the last 10 years went towards our health care costs, went towards our premiums. Now, that might be okay if we really had the finest health on the planet, but we don't. According to the World Health Organization, we rank roughly 26th in the world in infant mortality, 24th in disability-adjusted life expectancy, 37th in overall health system performance. We are tied with the nation of Slovenia. <laughs> and a very famous RAND study a number of years ago showed that in the United States today, and it doesn't matter whether you've got private health insurance or Medicare or Medicaid or even if you're uninsured, if you get into a clinic and you're treated by a doctor, you'll get the necessary recommended care a little more than half the time. In other words, we often don't do what you need, although we do a lot of stuff. It is not necessarily the right medical care. And it has been reported and it is widely believed that up to 1,000 Americans die each week because their treatment didn't follow basic guidelines. I'm not talking esoteric, high-tech, super-duper stuff. I'm talking blocking and tackling the basics that people need to get good medical care. So we are not delivering the value that Americans deserve and have every right to expect. Another measure, perhaps one that's less hard, easy to fudge, is just how, what is your national death rate from things we know how to treat? I mean, the, the bottom line is the mortality rate in the world is 100%. We're all going to go sometime. <laughs> but 
dying prematurely or dying younger from a condition like diabetes or heart failure or a bacterial infection in the lung, pneumonia, you know, we should be able to prevent a number of those at least for a number more years. So by this measure, countries can be compared to each other for dying from conditions that we know today without NIH research, without new blue chip science, we know how to treat. And by that measure, amenable mortality, in the last few years, we slipped from 16th to 19th out of 19 countries, dead last, as having the highest death rate from conditions we know how to treat, in part because, again, unlike these other countries, many of our fellow Americans don't have health insurance and aren't getting the care they need, even though we know how to deliver it. Now, when the current incumbent in the White House was elected and he was given commanding majorities in both chambers of Congress, he set about to change this. He decided that he was going to push through, with the help of his party in Congress, the most sweeping legislation to try to deal with the American health care system in a generation, known as the Affordable Care Act. They did it. We all watched and read every day the papers, the stories. And let's just say that response to this legislation was not unanimously positive. <laughs> and in fact, today we have an incredibly divided country, and about half of people think this is really a great idea, and about half of people think it's a horrible idea. And the House of Representatives changed hands in part as a result of this, and every day we hear and see debates. This is an enormously contentious issue. Not to be outdone. And RAND is, after all, a nonpartisan organization. The Republicans felt they also needed to step up to the plate and offer their solution, and they recently did in the path to prosperity. It would repeal the Affordable Care Act, it would privatize Medicare for everyone under the age of 55, and it would convert Medicaid, our categorical program for poor folks, into a block grant to the states. Once again, not everybody was excited about the prospects of this legislative change. So both parties put out positions. Both parties managed to antagonize a large chunk of the American electorate, which gives one pause and reminds me of a famous old saying by Larry Altman, a health policy expert, and so popular we called it Altman's Law, and that is that one of the reasons we never seem to get our hands around health care reform or to get it right is because the status quo is everyone's second choice. I don't like your idea, you don't like my idea, but at least I don't want to give up what I've got today. And that's really been where we have been as a country for several decades now while things have been getting worse. So you could ask, I think fairly, what's so bad with the status quo? I mean, I got coverage, I can get to the hospital, I know my doc. Well, the status quo isn't so hot either. Larry Lewin, the founder of the Lewin Group, and I wrote an article in the New England Journal about 18, 24 months ago, and we mapped out, because we had both chaired major committees for Institute of Medicine that examined the consequences of the status quo, and we pointed out that if we don't get our act together, if we just keep going straight ahead, cost growth will continue to be unchecked and health care costs will devour the economy, Employer-sponsored health insurance is now below 60% of working-age Americans get coverage that way. And we worry that we may reach a point where large segments of the employer community just say, hey, I'll tell you what, 
I don't cover my workers, you don't cover your workers, we're both better off. And as soon as companies don't compete to ensure their labor force, then you would see millions and millions of people lose coverage. The 10-year cost for Medicare and Medicaid at the current rate of growth, $10 trillion. The non-group market, what young adults and working people and entrepreneurs who are starting small businesses, folks who don't have group coverage like we enjoy at RAND, would continue to be what Consumer Reports calls a nightmare for consumers, full of gotchas, exclusions, loopholes, or unaffordable at any price. We're already seeing huge Medicaid cuts being promoted by the states because they're cash-strapped or out of money, and now that the Recovery Act dollars have come and gone, they're starting to want to gut their Medicaid programs, and that will push millions of more people onto the rolls of the uninsured, which will have immense consequences to individuals, children, families, entire communities when hospitals go under because they can't provide all that uncompensated care, and even for our entire economy. So the status quo isn't so great. This time around, don't think about Harry and Louise. Think about Thelma and Louise. We can go to the right or we can go to the left, but if we go straight ahead, well, we know how that movie ended. What most people don't realize is that this isn't just a health care issue. This is an economic issue for our entire country, and it is a huge driver of the federal budget deficit, which is now on everybody's lips and on the front page of the paper nearly every day. In fact, state and federal government spending combined, we put more government, more public money, more taxpayer dollars into health care than into Social Security and pensions, defense, education, welfare, public safety, you name it. This is the number one driver of federal spending, and in many states, it's now bigger than even spending for education. Not yet in California, but in a number of states it is. So this is a big issue for governments, a big issue for budgets, and a big issue for our economy. And like I said, it's getting worse every year. The Congressional Budget Office, a nonpartisan group, a few years back did a very provocative analysis. They said if we just run the numbers and health care costs continue to grow every year at the same rate they've grown for the last 30 years, always more than inflation, always higher, 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 and nothing changes. The force of gravity does not intervene. In 2082, 100% of the GDP will be in health care. That means we'll all be doctors, nurses, or patients. <laughs> nobody will grow our food. Nobody will teach our children. Nobody will defend our borders. We will all be in the healthcare system together. Well, now that's preposterous. But it does tell you that something profound is going to have to change between now and then, either by design or by default, because we just can't go there. So we do, in fact, have a system without breaks. And this is the problem. There is nobody in the system, from a consumer to a payer, who has a direct interest in changing the direction of this car. Patience. Americans fervently believe that if it's new and it's more and it's really technically complicated, it's got to be better. That purple pill I saw on television last night, I want one. My doctor knows best. Even if my doctor owns the imaging center down the street that he's referring me to for my third MRI. Don't worry about the cost, I'm insured. After all, I paid my premiums, or I have Medicare, I'm entitled. Doctors, I am one. 
the more we do, the more we make. The more tests I order, the more exams I do, the more people I run through the system, the bigger my income. But if I decide, you know what, I don't know if we ought to get that CAT scan. I don't know. Maybe we don't need to do that test. And I could miss something. Oh, buddy, am I in trouble? Because I guarantee you there'll be experts lined up to say, that bozo should have gotten that CAT scan and the MRI and three specialty consults. And if he had only done his job, my beloved client would not have suffered harm. So we, we take risks when we try to economize, and we make big bucks when we spend. And besides, we say the same thing. Oh, I'm not going to worry about it. They're covered. Insurance will pick up the tab. Hospitals have one goal in mind. Like the airline industry, they want to fill every seat or fill every bed. And they don't want to just put a patient in it. They want to put an elective patient for a high-margin procedure that has been pre-screened to make sure that they can pay their bill. And those poor folks down in the ER, well, we'll get them in if we got some left over, maybe at 1 or 2 in the morning or the next afternoon. But the goal is to fill every bed. That's the only way you can manage a revenue-generating hospital given the cost of hospitals today. And, by the way, we want to perform every procedure we possibly can because there's also good margins there. And vendors, again, new is better. Just like the days when cars came out with fins one year and vinyl tops the next, if it's shiny and it has lots of knobs on it and it glows, it's, you can charge a whole lot more for it, even if it doesn't do any better than the technology it's replacing. And besides, if Medicare balks, you can call up your congressman, call up your senator, raise hell, get the advocacy group for that particular disease to weigh in, and they'll fold like cupcakes and start writing checks because the industry is very powerful. Meanwhile, what are the payers doing? You think they're pushing back? Hell no. They're hiding. They're just, as long as I can get somebody else to pay the bill, I'm out of the game. So employers, they're raising co-pays and deductibles on their workers, shifting more of the cost to the employees. Or they're simply changing their workforce mix, outsourcing, contractor status, part-time, so you don't have to offer benefits. Insurers just pass on the premiums to you. So they get you coming or they get you going, or they duck the claim, I'm sorry, you didn't say you had acne when you were 16. You didn't report a pre-existing condition, you're denied, rescinded. Uh, or they delay payment to docs, two years, three years. I'm sorry, you didn't cross the second T in the third paragraph. Your claim is rejected. You're welcome to resubmit. States want to shift the cost to the feds. Feds want to shift cost to the states. So everybody's doing one of these, right? So if they can get out of the line of fire, they're not really worried about the fact that bullets are flying everywhere. And the bottom line is nobody is tackling the underlying problem, which is the system costs too much. In fact, if petroleum prices had gone up as much as health care costs had gone up in the last 20 or 5 or 30 years, we'd be paying 20 bucks a gallon at the pump. And if computers had gone up the way health care had gone up, we would all be paying $10,000 for a handheld calculator, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> Waste is a big problem. And this is both bad news and good news. The U.S. healthcare system blows about $750 billion a year on unnecessary inefficient services, excessive administrative costs, high prices, medical fraud, and missed opportunities for prevention. That's what the Institute of Medicine says, but they said it about 10 years after Bob Brook and a team of RAND and UCLA researchers applied the RAND-UCLA appropriateness criteria 
to the range of of treatments that we give in this country, and they concluded that about a third of the time we are wasting money on inappropriate treatments. And that one-third number keeps popping up in the literature, and when we look at these issues, we're probably wasting about a third of every dollar we put into health care. You could do a lot of good for the federal budget deficit, for education in California, and for your family's bottom line if we could find a third of savings in the American health care system. We're also very inefficient. T.R. Reid, not a great health policy guy, but a pretty darn good writer, wrote an interesting book a couple of years ago called The Healing of America. And he said that if you look around the world, there are four basic models of health care delivery that nations use. The first is a regulated private insurance industry with private doctors and hospitals. That's kind of what Germany does. That's what Paul Krugman was talking about. The second is the single-payer model. The Canadian healthcare system is a good example, where the government writes the checks, but private doctors and private hospitals give the care, and so patients have a full range of choices in terms of doctors or hospitals that they want to see. The third model is what politicians like to call socialized medicine. That's where the government owns the hospitals, the doctors are employees of the government, and the government pays the checks and taxpayers pay their taxes, and then they go to a government facility. The National Health Service in the United Kingdom is the classic model for that type of system. And then finally, there's the out-of-pocket model or the chicken-in-every-pot model or the please-please-help-me-no-one-else-will charity care model of sub-Saharan Africa, rural India, and the like. Well, T.R. Reid said, you know what? The United States, again, is we're exceptional. We're special. We have all four health care systems in one here. If you're under 65 and have a job and your employer helps you get your health insurance, we're Germany. We're regulated, not so much, but we're a regulated insurance industry. If you're in the U.S. military or you're a veteran with a service-connected disability or you're a Native American, we're the United Kingdom National Health Service. We are a government socialized health care system. If you're over 65, we're Canada. It's a single-payer model. It's called Medicare. And if you're one of the 50 million uninsured, we're Cambodia, Burkina Faso, or rural India. It's a charity or cash-as-you-go system. And we have all of them mixed together. And, and people go in and out of one to the other, sometimes multiple times a year. Insured, uninsured, Medicaid, didn't get their form in in time, off Medicaid, got a job, lost Medicaid, don't have coverage. It's a crazy system. Well, Bill Fagey, one of the great thinkers in public health, told me once, you know, Art, it's not hard to be brilliant. All you got to do is think of something stupid and do the opposite. <laughs> and in the case of healthcare and healthcare costs, we got lots of opportunities because there's lots of stupid out there that we can build from and learn from. And, and the examples could go on and on, but I just want to cite four. It's stupid that in the United States today, more than two-thirds of graduating medical students instantly zero in on a super, super subspecialty, because that's where the money is, that's where the lifestyle is, when our country desperately needs primary care docs. And it's stupid that we pay specialists three or four times as much as the Marcus Welby's we all remember and love, but we don't value them, or the general pediatrician, or the family physician, or the general internist. When we know that countries and states and communities that have higher percentages of primary care docs spend less money and are healthier, 
than communities that are packed with specialists. And yet, we ignore that. It's stupid that we pour tons of money and fund highly expensive, ultra-sophisticated, incredibly complex technologies long before we have a shred of evidence that they are actually better than what they're replacing. And yet we do that again because we're Americans, and if it's technological and it's shiny and it's new and it's cool, and especially if it involves a robot, it's got to be better. (laughs) It's stupid that we're ignoring the consequences of poor health in childhood, in young adulthood, when we know we're going to be paying a terrible price in diabetes, in hypertension, in renal failure, in all kinds of problems down the road. And yet we make fun of efforts to deal with these sorts of challenges rather than recognizing what a threat it is to our public's health and to our bottom line as a nation if we don't deal with these issues early and deal with them effectively. And yes, folks, it's stupid that in a nation like ours, we not only are not encouraging doctors and patients to have thoughtful decisions about your wishes at the end of your life, in private conversation with me, your physician. We call that a death panel when, in fact, everyone should be able to express their wishes, whether they want to go out in a blaze of glory in the ICU with every machine on the planet or they want to be at home with their children and their grandchildren and their spouse holding their hand. Whatever you want, you ought to be able to get. And nobody ought to get between you and your doctor in having that conversation. And yet I can't tell you how many times I've had that conversation with a family for the first time in their family's lives when their loved one came into my ER by 911 at 2 in the morning. And we're trying to decide whether or not to intubate that person and put them in an ICU. That's not the best time to have that conversation. But it's still better than not having it at all. And too often in our system, the moment you show up, you're there. And once you're in the ICU it can be very hard to let go because everyone will tell you, well, theoretically it's reversible. And all these teams don't even talk to each other. And so we spend astronomical amounts of money in the last 90 days of life, often to no end, other than a very tragic death. Rand Research has spoken to all of these topics and many more. And that's one of the reasons why I walked away from that ER after 25 years and came here. The most famous health services research study in history was the Rand Health Experiment, was the first to look and say, if you give the family skin in the game, if people pay some level of copayment, will they be more wise purchasers of health care? And the answer is yes. We did the groundbreaking work on quality of care. The gentleman that I replaced in this role, Bob Brook, is the giant in this field. He invented the field of quality care, not just for the United States, but worldwide. We studied many years ago the societal costs of poor health habits, smoking, obesity, et cetera, and quantified the fact that public health makes all kinds of sense, not just in terms of outcomes, but in terms of spending. We developed the RAND UCLA Appropriateness Care Criteria. We made the first major value case for health IT. We modeled a few years back what will happen in the future when folks like me are also elderly now. And we discovered that it isn't that it's an aging population that will be the challenge to Medicare. It's the growth of technology and the use of that technology when it's incredibly expensive that will be the big cost driver for future care of the elderly. We did the groundbreaking work on invisible wounds and showed and demonstrated to the public and to Congress 
the tremendous struggle that many of our returning men and women in uniform are having as they've come back from Iraq and Afghanistan and around the world. We've looked at the effects of the Affordable Care Act on costs and coverage in states. We have examined the impact of these high-deductible consumer-directed health plans where you have a $1,000 deductible per family member and showed that, yes, you will reduce your spending dramatically, but families also skimp on really appropriate preventive care, even if the plan covers it, mainly because they're trying to avoid going to the doctor at all because they don't want to pay that high deductible. And we've done many more. This is the kind of work that RAND does. And I can tell you that one of our major focuses going forward from now on is going to be how can we do a better job of controlling the cost of health care. Because you know what? There is enough money in the system today to give everyone the care they need. $2.5 trillion can buy an awful lot of medical care and an awful lot of good public health to boot. There will never, ever be enough money in the system to pay for every test and every treatment that somebody wants to sell. And our task at RAND is to help you, help Congress, help the private health care industry figure out the difference between what people need and what somebody wants to sell so that we can do the best with the money we have, get the best health and value out of it, and help strengthen our population and our nation's economy going forward. Think back to that Hummer. You know, 10 years ago, the iconic motor vehicles in American lexicon, the pantheon of American uh, motor vehicles, were the big SUVs like the Hummer. That personified America's auto industry on the world stage. They were highly profitable. They were flying out of showrooms. And even when we knew there were problems coming, Detroit just had this mindset. That's where the revenue is. That's where the quarterly earnings are. And you know what happened. GM went bankrupt, Chrysler went bankrupt, Ford nearly went bankrupt, and the federal government, with our tax money, had to step in and bail out this industry. But they retooled, they re-engineered, and this year, the Chevy Cruze, much less expensive, much better gas mileage, cracked not only the top 10 sellers in the U.S., the top five, just behind the Honda Accord. If you will, it's a new icon for American automotive ingenuity. And I think we will do better yet in the years to come because we do know how to compete in this country when there's a market case for it. My question to you is, can Hummer Healthcare be far behind? I hope not. For the sake of our country, for the sake of you and your families, for the sake of our economy, may we find a better, high-value, more affordable, more sustainable healthcare system, the kind of healthcare system a great nation and a great people deserve. I appreciate your attention. The floor is open for questions and comments. Thank you all for coming. We have time for a few audience questions. I'd ask you to keep it brief so we can get to as many questions as we possibly can. Raise your hand, and myself and my associate, Sachi, will find you and ask a question. We have the first one right here. Hi, thank you very much. It was a wonderful talk. Um, you mentioned um, doctors going into specialties. A lot of that, of course, is because they're trying to pay off six-figure loans. Yep. Is there any possibility of the government paying for their education so they can be flexible? That is an excellent point, and it is absolutely a factor. I mean, there are lifestyle considerations, but the average American student today comes out with an incredible debt. 
And unless we come to terms with that, we're going to have a huge, a, a worse problem on our hands. The other thing that does is it actually discourages a lot of very gifted young men and women who would go into medicine but just can't imagine racking up that kind of debt, even if they were able to borrow the money. Now, you know, I, I will politely say whenever we say, well, can't the government do that? The government really, as, as corny as it sounds, it's still us. If we get on the horn, talk to our legislators, talk to our senators, say, why aren't we working on this? They will pay attention. And I do think if you consider things like the National Health Service Corps and other measures, there, there are avenues out there, but there are, too, there are too few of them, and we need to do better. But it's absolutely a fact that economics trump almost any other consideration. When you can know that your earning potential over a career will be millions of dollars greater, it's a marvel that anyone picks primary care. More power to those that do. Question to your left. Yes, my question is uh, regarding tort reform. And does it, would that be meaningful if we had significant tort reform as far as health care costs? That's a great question. And obviously it's a very contentious issue in Washington. Just in the last week, the head of RAND's Institute for Civil Justice, Jim Dertuzos, and I co-authored a memo to Congress that analyzed the evidence on one side or the other for that question. And the fact of the matter is, I think both sides tend to overstate the issue and, and entrench. We do know that a California-style micro-law, which caps uh, claims on pain and suffering, lowers premiums to some degree, has some economic effects. It also tends to hurt the most vulnerable and the most elderly in lawsuit situations. The problem with both the tort reform advocates and the tort reform opponents is they've been bunkered down on that single model of tort reform for way too long. One of the more promising concepts, but we don't have good data on how well it would work today, is what is called a safe harbor, which says if you're a doctor and you practice best evidence, the best science we know for the most appropriate therapy, thoughtfully with skill, and the patient does bad, and you know what, sometimes you do everything right and the patient does bad, you would be immune in that situation. That would be a powerful attraction to get doctors to do the right thing and not be afraid to do the right thing. But there's just no good evaluation data on that because no state has taken that kind of a strategy. So there are promising ideas, but we don't have hard evidence today uh, of what kind of impact. My hunch is that the benefits are greater than the opponents of tort reform want you to believe but less than what the advocates of one particular style of tort reform claim. I have a question on your right. Hi, Dr. Kellerman. Welcome to Los Angeles. Thank you. Thank you to Rand for bringing you here. I, you know, I actually drove around the other day, got from point A to point B without a GPS. I was awesome. so proud. You're a native. Well, of course, it helped that I was going about five miles an hour the whole time like this. But yeah. Thank you for coming. Uh, which of the four systems do you think would work best if we eliminated the other three? Oh, boy, that's a loaded question. <laughs> um, you know, I'd, I will give the answer that I've given other settings, which is it's the system that we as a country are willing to rally around. If you want to say, based on international comparisons, what's the most economically efficient, just, et cetera, I would point to the work of the Institute of Medicine Committee on the consequences of uninsurance that I co-chaired and issued six reports over four years. And in that, either a single-payer system, you know, or a system that didn't have a zillion different companies would be the most economically efficient model. 
an awful lot of people would get their oxus gourd if we went in that model. One could imagine a regulated industry with a really smart set of essential health benefits. If, if what insurance industry had to pay was pretty consistent and made sense, and then they could play around the margins and compete on price and compete on being nice instead of ugly, we'd get an awful lot of the way there. But, you know, we're a country where everybody's jockeying for interest. But this, this crazy quilt that we have today, uh, I mean, I got two degrees. I'm double-boarded specialist. I actually know this stuff. I had some bills to deal with in the last year or two. And, you know, nobody can understand this stuff. That We know that doesn't work. But that was an answer, by the way, as an individual, not on behalf of the Rand Corporation or anybody else. Uh, kind of a, not quite quickly enough. I should have said that first. Kind of an elaboration on the last point. Yeah. In, in your view, from a patient's point of view, uh, what are the significant negatives of the Canadian, the U.K., and the German system? Um, the, the biggest negative, because they are not – there isn't as much money out there. If you are covered, if you have insurance – you can get your elective surgery. You can get things faster. You don't have to wait as long for elective procedures or for certain diagnostic tests as you do in those countries. Every system has its advantages and disadvantages. Um, there may be fewer doctors in certain specialties in Canada, for example, than the U.S., and so there may be a longer wait to see a neuro-ophthalmologist or whatever, whatever. But, you know, to be very honest with you, those aren't the weights that matter. They're inconvenient, they can be frustrating, they're rarely deadly. The weights that matter are the weights for a critical care bed when you're having a heart attack. It's the weight when your ambulance is diverted from this hospital to that hospital. It's the weight when you are a trauma patient or your son is messed up in a car crash and the trauma center is no longer open in your community because it closed because it had so much uncompensated care. Those weights are much worse in this country than in those countries. So. Every country has its advantages and disadvantages. But by and large, when you actually survey folks, people in those countries are happier with their systems than we are with ours. But, you know, we don't have to look at international comparisons. We know in this country there are states and communities that spend 20 30 percent less per person and are healthier than other communities after you adjust for illness. So we've got plenty of good examples of excellent, efficient, high-quality care inside the United States. And one of the things RAND is doing more and more now is partnering and studying those systems and helping share those knowledge. Because, you know, Americans would much rather copy another American than copy a Frenchman or a German or, God forbid, a Canadian. I have a question in the middle. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I want to carry on from that last point. I mean, these places are like the Mayo Clinic and Kaiser right here in California, where it's a different system than everywhere else. It's, it's uh, the, the, it, the doctors are hired by the, the doctors and clinics are owned by those companies, and they have much lower care prices. So I'd like you to talk about that. And also on the same issue of cost, can you explain to us how this funny cost works? I mean, if you go into an emergency room for two hours... Uh, because you felt bad, it's gonna, you're going to get a bill for $1,500. And you send that to your insurance company, and the insurance company reports to you that although they were billed $1,500, they actually paid $300. Right, and except they, if you are uninsured, in which case you right, expected right. to pay so the full $1,500. <laughs> 
So you, if you can talk about both these issues. Okay, well, very briefly, the first is that systems, systems are perfectly designed to get the results they get, and form follows finance. And for many hospitals and health systems in the country, as I said, the more you do, the more money you make. If we change the economic incentives, if we change the rules of the game to reward efficiency, high-quality patient safety, and that was really clear, I have no doubt in my mind that American medicine could kick ass, take names, save money, and deliver. But there's no business case for it in most systems. Some systems there is, and they are, have a subscriber base or their economic model is different. So we, we do well with economic incentives in this country. We don't do well when you ask people to pursue a strategy that is against their bottom line interest. ERs, great example. Two things I'd say. First of all is if you went into McDonald's and every other person didn't pay for the Big Mac, how much do you think your Big Mac would cost? The only medical care to which Americans have a legal right is care in the emergency department. And you're entitled to life-saving care without regard for your ability to pay, and it is an unfunded mandate. So hospitals will try to shift the cost for the uncompensated care onto everybody else. The second thing is we're just stupid. We grossly overpay, I mean, overcharge for your minor illness care in the ER, and then when we save your life, we charge you 50% or twice as much. We should charge you an arm and a leg for saving your life and not much more than a walk-in clinic for the minor stuff, but most hospitals do the opposite. They undercharge for the really critical stuff and overcharge in the ER only. You know, when a radiologist gets paid more for reading the X-ray images than I got paid for treating the patient, I don't think that's fair, but it's America. We have a question in the back. Hello. Um, Hi. I wonder, given, uh, as you stated up there, that people only get about 55% of the health care that they should, how much does health care play into our overall health, and how much should, should we focus instead on, on you know, uh, looking at health over the long term of someone's life? That is a great question. And how much would that cost if we actually went up to 100%? Well, the, there's a famous study by McGinnis and Fagy the same Fagy that said it's not hard to be brilliant, where they actually quantified, and roughly speaking, health care delivery, hospitals, doctors, et cetera, are about 20% of your health status. A lot of it is how well you've taken care of yourself. Do you drink too much? Do you smoke? So there are a lot of other factors. So public health, prevention, a good education, all of these things matter. I got into it with a colleague at a meeting about 10 days ago, and he stood up and, and expressed to his credit, he was honest, what a lot of people in the healthcare industry say, which is, what's so wrong with 17 18% of GDP? It's economic activity. We're hiring people. We're, we're generating jobs. He said, maybe it ought to be 25%. And I said, you're crazy. Because all those dollars are dollars that don't I, I think we could get more bang for our buck by better educating our children. You know, we get more bang for our buck by having a much more robust public health system. So it really is a balance. It's all of these factors together. For your age group, the most important thing you can do when you leave here tonight is buckle your daggone seatbelt. Because the greatest risk of premature death under the age of 45 is not AIDS, it's not pneumonia, it's injuries, and it's mostly car crashes. That's a powerful vaccine. And it's really, really effective. So you're right. A lot of other factors affect health besides big, shiny hospitals. And that is something that we're actually, Rand is discussing with the CDC right now, the potential for doing a value study, major, major study, to look at, you think health care costs a lot now? What if we had not made the investments in public health the last 20 or 30 years? 
I have a question that would in the be front. interesting. There has been discussion about whether in deciding to spend health care dollars, one should take into account the longevity of the individual for whom you are going to spend the dollars, i.e., for an elderly person, perhaps give less care than for a young person. What are your views on that? You know, I am not supportive of an age definition. I'm much more supportive of giving people, allowing them to express their preferences with the accurate and fair information in front of them. I am not making this up. Last night, I had dinner with a colleague, a department chairman and professor at a medical school in the Southwest, who described his father who in his 80s was playing tennis but had heart failure. I mean, he was fragile health, but 85, started to develop trouble, The doctors convinced him he really needed to get cardiac surgery to get his valve fixed. Well, one thing led to another, and he ends up in the ICU with four different teams, the lung team, the heart team, the kidney team, and the liver team. And dad kept losing ground and kept losing ground, and finally he just says, to hell with this. I'm 86. I'm in multi-organ failure. I'm shutting down. And they refused to listen to him. And he had a physician's son. And he said it went on for three more weeks because they were all, no, you can't because we know we can turn this around. So, no, I don't think you should say, I'm sorry, you're 90. Happy birthday, it's over. (laughs) Nor do I think, you know, when my own mother passed away after having a series of strokes and being very, very, she was mentally alert and physically totally incapable of doing anything. And I finally had to write over a chart, do not call 911, do not call anybody, call me. And again, I had to deal with a lot of folks in the system that said, I can't believe you don't. Don't you love your mother? I said, you bet I do. And she's the boss. And she especially has the right to decide what she wants. So we kind of we keep equating end-of-life decision-making with rationing or arbitrary decisions. No. But what I see 10 times more often than somebody not getting the care that they need when they're elderly or disabled are people who just knee-jerk get it even when they don't want it. Or when or families that'll come in, the you know, the, the 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 black sheep son who comes roaring in from Las Vegas on his motorcycle after having not seen mom for eight years while the sister did all the care and they go do everything for mama, oh I see you pull out the stops it's my mom son of a he wasn't there for the last seven years. <laughs> Meanwhile the daughter's over there kind of going but that's my mom and you know. Fortunately, that's one of the reasons we have grown-ups working in ERs now, is so you can pull those folks aside and have that conversation. It's really not what the daughter wants, and it's not what the son wants. It's what does mama want? Or what did mama want when mama was able to express her wishes because she can't now because she's too sick? So that's really, that's ethics, it's good medicine, it's good decision-making, and by and large, we will come out the right place with resource use too. But the bottom line is it's what's right. Not, not some arbitrary age number. We have time for one final question in the back. Um, there's been a lot of studies that have shown the preventable you know, situations, obesity, smoking, and all that, cause a huge percentage of the health care yep. dollars. You know, I've read anywhere from 20 to 50%. Now, it seems to me the, the payers are primarily governmental and employers who pay for most of the care. And as you said, hospitals and drug companies and doctors – the less healthy we are, the more money they make. Yes. So 
why is it that the governments and the employers aren't spending huge resources trying to keep people healthy? Because they're the ones who are paying for unhealthy people. You know, they're starting to. I mean, honestly, they are. And again, we're partnering with a number of companies to do that. And we're doing some really exciting work with public health community around this. The fact of the matter is that we've made enormous progress in in tobacco control in the last 20, 25 years. Enormous progress. We have a long way to go with obesity. Uh, it's It's going to be a lot harder issue to tackle but I think we can get there over time. And these are both very high priorities for RAND Science today. One of my colleagues in the Pittsburgh office said recently, he did a really interesting analysis where he looked at how many times young, attractive women in the movies are smoking. And he described the latest Sex in the City movie as a 90-minute infomercial for you know cigarettes for young women. Um, so there's all kinds of ways that, that, that good health can be encouraged or bad health can be sold. And, uh, and we really are at the forefront of that. I just wanted to thank you all for coming tonight and let you know why I stepped away from the bedside of one of the country's great public ERs in Atlanta was that as much as I love taking care of people one patient at a time and teaching residents and raising hell in Georgia, um, RAND is such a unique organization. It is such an amazing, it's a national and a global treasure and I wanted to go someplace where I knew we could focus on these issues, and I knew people like you would care. We really can make a difference, and we can work our way through this. There is immense talent in our healthcare system today, and we can harness it and do a much better job, but we can also get better value and save money at the same time, and that's why I came to RAND, and I'm glad that you all came to RAND tonight. Thank you very much. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.